You're listening to the Unmute Podcast with Maisha Cherry. Welcome to the place where philosophy and real world issues collide. Hello, and welcome to the Unmute Podcast. This is the place where I have the opportunity to talk to diverse philosophers about the social and political issues of our day. Today, I chat with Eric Switzgable. Eric is a professor of philosophy at the University of California, Riverside. His main research interests are in philosophy of mind, classical Chinese philosophy, and moral psychology. His books include A Theory of Jerks, Perplexity of Consciousness, and Describing Inner Experience. In this episode, we talk about jerks, sweethearts, science fiction, public philosophy, and so much more. Hello, Eric, and welcome to the Unmute Podcast. How are you doing today? I'm doing all right. (laughs) Good, 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 good. So before we get started talking about jerks, I don't think I've ever asked you this question before, but how did you get interested in philosophy? Well, I didn't really know what philosophy was when I went to college, but I knew I wanted to be a professor because my dad was a professor and my mom was a community college teacher. Okay. And I really liked what I saw them doing, especially my dad who taught at California Lutheran University, a small teaching school in Southern California. And I thought, I want to be a professor like that. So my plan was I'll just go to college and I'll take whatever classes look interesting to me with no attention to requirements or what I'm going to major in or anything like that. Just going to take whatever strikes my interest. And then whatever class I end up taking the most of, I figure I'll want to become a professor of that. I've discovered my interests. So so that was my approach. And I didn't actually figure out that I wanted to be a philosophy major in particular until my senior year. And then I just stocked up on philosophy classes at the end and applied to grad school. Are there any classes that stood out to you that really grabbed your attention? Or is it just every philosophy course I'm interested in? The one that really got me initially most excited was a a class in history and philosophy of science by Peter Gallison. Um, I was especially just fell in love with Kuhn right away. So we read Kuhn's Structure of Scientific Revolutions uh, in that class, among many other things. It was a super demanding class. Um, but, uh, I just, it transformed, I had, I had started my education thinking I might want to go into biology or chemistry and, and reading Kuhn just transformed my understanding of science in this really interesting way. Thinking of science as a cultural phenomenon, uh, in which people have views for all kinds of reasons, many of which, you know, aren't necessarily what we would want to endorse or still endorse. Um, I found Kuhn just really fascinating. So. Um, and the history of science in general really fascinating. So that's how I, I got started. And I took a couple classes with John Dupre while he was there, um, including a grad seminar on um, uh, something in philosophy of science. I forget exactly what it was. Maybe value in philosophy of science. Um, and I always loved, I also took a wonderful class on classical Chinese philosophy with P.J. Ivanhoe, who was, I was, this is all at Stanford, who was at Stanford at the time. Uh, and I fell in love with ancient Chinese philosophy, especially the ancient, ancient Chinese thinker Zhuangzi. Hi, 
I am excited to talk with you today about your theory of jerks, which is part of the title of your, 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 your latest book, The Theory of Jerks and Other Philosophical Misadventures. And correct me if I'm wrong, these are, these are essays um, that you've written over the years that was first published on your, on your blog. And I, wanna, I want us to discuss the, the title essay, which is The Theory of Jerks, because in America, I've been thinking about jerks <laughs> for a while. I'm not going to tell you why. I'm going to let you guess why I've been thinking about jerkdom or jerkitude. So, so tell us, what is a jerk? And what do you think are some of the moral, emotional, or, or epistemic failures that, that jerks make? I have a formal analytic philosophy kind of definition of a jerk. A jerk is someone who culpably, that is, in a blameworthy way, fails to appreciate the perspectives of the people around them, right? So fails to appreciate their intellectual perspectives, for example, how they could be right about something and the jerk, him or herself, could be wrong, and fails to appreciate their moral or emotional perspectives, right? That is, fails to take into account their values and their interests, uh, and instead focuses, stays in a kind of self-centered perspective. So, so you know you've witnessed a jerk when, what? <laughs> you, you notice I said witness a jerk as opposed to you know you've been a jerk, which we'll get to, but you know you're in the presence of a jerk when... One of one of the situations that tends to bring out jerkitude in people is, for some reason or other, is waiting in lines. So when you see the person who cuts into the front of the line as though other people don't really matter and takes a lot of time uh, making special requests, right, that do- doesn't particularly paying attention to the rules of the organization or why uh, the poor person who's trying to help them <laughs> might not be able to grant the requests, right? Paying no attention to the fact that other people might have other different needs that are now being ignored because they've uh, butted in with their special demands. That would be a kind of situation where you see jerkitude really coming out, I think. Is, is, is jerkitude simply the absence of empathy or is, it, or is it much more than that? Because it seems like failing to appreciate the perspective of others, according to some, some views, that's exactly what empathy is. So is jerkitude just right. someone who can't empathize with others or is there more content to it? Yeah, I would put a little more content to it than that, right? So empathy is related to being able to understand the maybe emotional perspectives of others. Um, Now, there might be a little difference between understanding and appreciating, right? Right, So I define jerkitude in terms of appreciation, right? So you could imagine someone who understands, perfectly well understands other people's emotional perspectives, but doesn't appreciate them, doesn't take them into account, kind of maybe even turns it in a sadistic direction, right? So that's one difference between simple lack of empathy and jerkitude. And then another difference is empathy does, I think, tend to focus mostly on the emotional side. And another thing that's characteristic of the jerk is a failure to appreciate others' intellectual perspectives, Mm -hmm. not just their emotional differences, but also their differences in in opinion about about facts. Some people may be thinking, well, well, I probably know some jerks, but I also know some assholes and I also know some narcissists. And, and people may be tempted to kind of lump all of those under, under one umbrella or one category. How does, how does jerks differ from, from assholes or from narcissists? From just bad people in general. 
<laughs> Great. And I think we, I think you know, in ordinary language usage, we use jerk in lots of different ways, and there's not necessarily a really precise uh, boundary around it, and all of these terms kind of mush together. But I think it could be helpful to to come up with semi-stipulative, somewhat precise definitions of these things that pull apart some of the differences, right? So, I mean, one really interesting comparison, I think, is the asshole as defined by Aaron James, right? So Aaron James has this wonderful book called Assholes, a Theory, and he describes an asshole as someone who helps themselves to special advantages out of an entrenched set of entitlement. And um, I talked with him about this as he was developing these ideas. And I was working simultaneously on jerks, so we saw that our, our interests overlapped. And um, his kind of paradigm example, as he was thinking about this, is the asshole surfer, right? So all the surfers are out there. He's Aaron James is a big surfer. In fact, I think he has a book coming out called Why Surfing's Better Than Sex, <laughs> or maybe it's oh, already wow. out. <laughs> Yeah, so so he's picturing the asshole surfer as you know all the surfers are out there and they're kind of customs about when do you when do you take your turn and how do you wait for the waves and stuff like that because they're all trying to catch good waves and there may be sometimes too many of them to all get the best waves right but the asshole surfer just pays no attention to those rules cuts in the line to to get the best wave pays no attention and when you confront them about that they're just like ah oh, screw you so that's so that's closely related to the jerk but I but I also think that. Um, a jerk is a somewhat broader type than that. I think there are there are jerks who don't help themselves to special advantages, right? So, and one kind of jerk that I think is very interesting um, is the moralizing jerk. Okay. Imagine like a school teacher, uh, a high school teacher who's super harsh and punitive and moralizing and really strictly follows the rules that they set, and maybe doesn't, like, in any particular way, help himself to special advantages. He doesn't really expect different treatment from other teachers or anything like that. He's not cutting in line like the asshole surfer. Um, and yet this person completely fails to appreciate the perspectives of the students mm. as he's bringing the hammer down on them or as he's disrespecting them, as he's, you know, kind of... Uh, doing various the various subtly sadistic things that uh, school teachers, especially with a kind of patina of morality around them, uh, often do. So that would be one example of a, of a jerk, right, who's failing to appreciate the legitimate interests and perspectives of their students, but maybe isn't, you know, helping himself to special advantages. Do you think there are some people who are more prone to be jerks? Uh... Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I don't think anyone's probably a purely 100% jerk or purely 100% the opposite of jerk in my conception as a sweetheart. We can talk about that later if you want. But yeah, I suspect there are people who are who are more prone in that direction than others. I think one thing that sometimes brings out the jerk in people more is social privilege, hmm. right? So in my mind, kind of, what it feels like to be a jerk from the inside is sometimes like feeling that you're important and you're surrounded by idiots, right? That, that kind of feeling I'm important, right? That's a way of kind of feeling like your interests and your projects are more important than other people's interests and projects, right? And thinking that you're surrounded by idiots 
right? That's a kind of characteristic of disregarding other people's perspectives when they disagree with you, right? So, and, and I think people who are accustomed to being in situations of privilege, it's easy to fall into that, right? Because the social evidence around you kind of suggests maybe that you are important, right? Yeah. You're you're in the first class seat, right? And the other people have to go to the back of the plane, right? And you're the one who's been successful in business or academia or whatever. So you must be smart, right? The other people who aren't as successful, they must they must not be as smart as you. Uh, you know, their perspectives obviously haven't led them to the, the brilliant things that you've accomplished. So why should I respect or value those perspectives? So, and then also when people in those situations will often be surrounded by people who flatter them, right? Who then reinforce this sense that they're distinctively important uh, and distinctively smart. So I think that's one kind of um, type of situation, life situation that, that, can, can, that can reinforce and bring out the jerkitude in people who are, especially people who are maybe already somewhat inclined in that direction. You briefly mentioned the moral, moralizing jerk. And I, I'm going to quote you here. You know, you know, in your book, you said, quote, social movements sometimes do well when led by a moral, moralizing jerk. And I wonder if you can say more about this. And I also wonder what areas, what other areas might this extend to, if you think there are other areas in which this can extend to. Answering that question, let me first start by saying what I think a sweetheart is, because I think okay. that will help, help in thinking about the answer to that, the question you just asked. So the way that I conceive of it, a sweetheart uh, is is kind of just the opposite of a jerk. A, a sweetheart is someone who really acutely is really acutely aware of and appreciative of the moral, emotional, intellectual perspectives of the people around them. Right. So they'll instead of cutting into line, right, they'll let people in front of them uh, in line if they seem like they're in a special hurry, and they'll they'll help people, you know, if they drop their their papers and they'll they'll call up with an embarrassed apology if after having been unintentionally rude and and they're they're totally ready to be convinced that they might be wrong and, and that other people might be right about things when when they offer an idea and someone disagrees right so that's the kind of the sweetheart right so you know if you if you imagine a social movement being led by one of these people that person is going to have some trouble mm-hmm. i think uh, I mean, they're going to have some great advantages too. I think I mean, I'm not saying that sweethearts are always going to be ineffective, but um, but there are going to be certain challenges for people like that, right? Because they're not going to have that kind of bold self certainty that people have who are maybe less attuned to how they might be wrong, <laughs> right? right? They're they're not going to be willing. They're they're going to be eager to make compromises, maybe rather than standing tough. Uh, in ways that they should. Uh, they're not going to be willing to kind of crack heads together to get things done, force people to do things, be annoying, be pushy. Right? The sweetheart does not want to be pushy. Right? So sometimes people who are effective leaders are people who are somewhat on the jerky side. Right? And, and this can be true. And since jerks can be moralizing, I don't think... I don't think a jerk necessarily has to be someone who's 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 lacking morality, right? There's a there's a failure to appreciate the perspectives of people around you, but you might be willing to sacrifice yourself for humanity in general. You might hate everybody around you, think they're <laughs> idiots, right. right? Loathe every person in your vicinity, and yet die for the cause, right? You could, I mean, there are, there are people who are like that. I think. Um, 
So a jerk can have a moral vision, and when you have someone who's got a, a, a good moral vision and who is one of these effective, pushy, head-knocking, self-certain jerks, right? that can be an effective formula. Now, I, I think it's so hard to, to tell what people are really like from the clips you get through media. So I'm a little hesitant to say, oh, so-and-so and so-and-so was a jerk or so-and-so wasn't based on social media. I mean, may maybe, I, maybe I could venture some guesses <laughs> if you want to push me. But, um, but one example that I think is really fascinating is Robert Johnson, uh, uh, Lyndon Johnson, right? So um, there's this wonderful four-volume biography of Robert Johnson. Uh, sorry, I keep saying Robert Johnson. His biographer is Robert Caro. Right. So Lyndon Johnson has got this wonderful biography by Robert Caro. It's got four volumes and there's a projected fifth volume, which will hopefully come out before Caro dies. Um, and it's just a fascinating, uh, gives fascinating degree of insight into his character. And I think it, I, I feel pretty comfortable saying that Lyndon Johnson was a class A jerk. Right. Mm -hmm. That's what everyone says. Right. If you look at the historical examples of what, how people talked about him, that's what everyone says. And it really shines through in his in his biography. He he loved to humiliate people. who was in his social circle, especially especially his his poor wife, Lady Bird, who he would insult her physical appearance in public and treat her as a servant. And when she didn't do things exactly right, he'd humiliate her further. He would when he was trying to get things from you know other politicians, he would get up really close, uncomfortably close to their face, and he would put his hands under their jackets and feel around in their pockets. Right. This is back when everyone wore jackets and ties, right? All the men anyway. Right. And he'd feel around under their jackets and get them like super uncomfortable and get in their face and threaten them with, you know, revealing personal secrets and stuff like that. He would really uh, get into people's faces when he wanted them to get something done. And he knew how to do that super effectively in a way that people really found uh, horrible and jerky. And yet, um, given his position of power, was also very effective. Right. And, you know, through those means, he helped achieve some good things, right? like the Great Society social programs and, you know, civil rights legislation and stuff like that, um, animated by a certain kind of moral vision, which unfortunately completely failed him when it came to the Vietnam War. But um, but yeah, that's the kind of that's the kind of case that I have in mind when I think about moralizing jerks perhaps being effective leaders of social movements you, you're calling it a moralizing jerk and i'm wondering why not call it just a sweet jerk and let me let, let me let me let me kind of explain what i mean by that so you you, you say that there's no one who's a perfect jerk there's no one who's a, a perfect sweetheart and when you use language like that it just makes me think about aristotle and perhaps as a mean of sorts and, and when, I'm, when, you, when you're describing Johnson, I'm thinking to myself, well, perhaps we may want that kind of moralizing jerk to kind of fight for us. But is that the kind of person that I would want to work for? <laughs> no, you would not want to work for Johnson, right? for sure. <laughs> <laughs> so so, so is, there, is there a mean that we can reach, right, in which you can be a leader that can be a, a, a jerk in the sense in which you're talking about, in which that person is willing to go to bat and, and fight and do what is necessary in order to get certain things accomplished, but also can, can exhibit kind of sweetheart traits to those who are fighting with them in, in the cause? You know, that would be really nice if that was true. <laughs> you don't think it's true? <laughs> right. Well... I guess or possible. I don't know. I don't know. I, I right there's a kind of picture on which you might say, well look, 
there is an ideal place to be on the spectrum from jerk to sweetheart where you would be simultaneously in the moral sweet spot, right? Where you weren't as self-sacrificing, maybe needlessly self-sacrificing, failing moral duties to yourself as a pathological sweetheart is, right? And also, right, not a jerk, right? And then also that person would be a super effective person, right? More, morally in the right space and effectively in the right space and everything kind of lines up at this one space, you know, in the, the golden mean, right? But on this on the spectrum i just i think that would be i don't think things are that simple i think things are more chaotic than that mm-hmm. i think there are almost always trade-offs right real i mean maybe we could fantasize such a person but i think realistically it's hard to be a person who will knock heads only and exactly in the right way right if you want if if a social movement needs a head knocker Right, then maybe the person who is really effective in that is gonna have some other vices that just come along with being a good head knocker. Right. Um, and maybe the, the more, maybe the type of character that's most effective is not the same spot on the spectrum between the type of character that is most moral. Right. Those don't necessarily have to be the same spot. Um, so yeah, so I think it's gonna be. I think it's not going to be quite as as neat as as that picture you suggested. We're faced with with the with the with the difficulty here, right? I mean, let's not even call it a difficulty. It's it's a little bit more uh, um, nuanced than one might expect, right? And so. I have several questions. So a person is striving. They, they've listened to you and they say, hey, this is what a jerk is. It doesn't seem like being a jerk is a good thing, but perhaps a moralizing jerk, depending on what position you stand in the society, what cause you're fighting for. And then it seems like you're also upholding kind of the, the virtues of, of, of the sweetheart, but recognizing that if you are that in all times, then that probably would not be so, so, so beneficial. And whether we agree on a sweet spot and whether it's even possible to reach that sweet spot is, is, is kind of up in the air. So, so, this is my question to you as a moral philosopher. What should we do, Eric? Who should we be? <laughs> oh, well, I don't have a great answer for that. I, I'll, I, I will tell you one thing. I will tell you one thing that I think is valuable to do. So I've got this concept I, I call jerk goggles. Okay. So I think there's a characteristic way of seeing the world when you're kind of in jerk mode or, or when you're being a jerk which is you see the people around you as kind of fools and tools, as kind of faceless non-entities. You see people around you in terms of negatively valenced, broad social categories, you know, like, oh, you know, there's the party girl. Oh, there's the, you know, the poor person. Oh, there's the rich snobby person, right? When you're seeing the world, the people around you in the world in this way, I think what you're doing is you're wearing jerk goggles. Mm. The, the, the concept came to mind, and the reason I started actually with the post office example or the waiting in line example near the beginning, the concept for me came to mind when I was um, waiting in a post office line back in those days when we used to wait in post office lines. I mean, people still do, Eric. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I less common. Went to the bus office, Eric, it still exists and it's still awful. Oh, wow. Okay, 
<laughs> All right, I haven't been in a post office line for a while, for the, partly because of the pandemic. But um, yeah, so I remember going to the post office line and I was just seeing, I was feeling impatient. There's all these people, you know, I'm near the back of this long line, and it seems like all the people in front of me are just being kind of stupid people who are bumbling around with, the, with the, you know, like, why is this old woman taking so long to order stamps, right? And I felt like, I felt like I'm important. <laughs> why do I have to wait in half an hour line between these behind these idiots, right? And as soon as I kind of thought that thought to myself, <laughs> I thought. I'm seeing the world through jerk goggles. I'm seeing the world just like I've been actually, I mean, stepping one step further back from that. I had recently been having a discussion with a friend of mine about his boss. And his boss, we were talking about how his boss saw the world. And the boss saw the world, and we were kind of pretending that we were the boss. We were running around helping ourselves to cookies, saying, well, I'm a partner and I'm surrounded by idiots. And then... As I'm sitting in the post office line, basically having that thought myself, I thought I am seeing the world through jerk goggles, right? And if you can see the, if 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 you can notice when you're doing that, and try to take those jerk goggles off, and think about people as individuals, see them as individuals with distinctive and interesting, probably interesting lives and things they're doing that are worthwhile and different perspectives and values that you can appreciate, instead of painting them broadly in negative social categories then then you're seeing the world less like a jerk right so that's one thing that i think you can do i think one thing that i uh, aspire to do and i would encourage other people to do is, is is try to notice when you're seeing the world through jerk goggles you mentioned this in the essay and, and i think this is a good time to kind of kind of ask this question one might think well hey I'm seeing the world through my jerk goggles. I recognize it and I take them off, right? And people might think, well, it's as easy as that. But you kind of lay out some difficulties that we must fight through in order to see ourselves as a jerk or to see or to recognize when we have these these moral, uh, these, I said moral goggles, these <laughs> jerk goggles on. So I just wonder if you can just, for people who think it will be easy, right? You just recognize it and then you're able to take them off. If you can just illuminate some of the difficulties uh, that may prevent us from even recognizing that we have had them on uh, so that we can be more prepared. Yeah, well, I think jerk self-knowledge is pretty hard to come by, right? So I gave you what I thought is the best way to try to find it. And even that way, I think, is not going to be super reliable. But, um, you know, when you think to yourself, right, there's, there's a literature in psychology on the self-description of character traits, Right. And I really like Samin Vizier's work on this. And she says, look, people are pretty good at self-ascribing character traits when those traits are relatively evaluatively neutral and relatively straightforwardly observable. So if you take a trait like talkative, right, it's OK to be talkative and it's OK to be quiet. I mean, you know, maybe there's some slight valence to one or the other, but, you know, basically it's fine to be either way. And regardless of, <laughs> of whether it's fine to be either way, it's kind of hard not to notice whether you're a talkative or quiet person. It's kind of obvious, right? So, so when you're talking about a trait like that, right, people's self-ratings of their talkativeness tend to line up with how other people rate them in their talkativeness, which then tend to line up with how experimenters, uh, how, how experimenters observe uh, their talkativeness as measured in observational experiments. But if you look at a character trait like unfair, the ratings come widely apart. 
right? Mm -hmm. So self ratings and peer ratings or self ratings and other ratings, they correlate at basically zero, right? And that's because being unfair, right? It's highly negatively loaded. I mean, people do not want to see themselves as generally unfair people, right? So you're motivated to want to see yourself in a certain way. And it's hard to observe directly. It's not straightforward. I mean, how can you evaluate? It's not straightforwardly evaluable when you're being unfair, right? You can kind of come up with excuses and justifications for kind of whatever you want to do if you're willing to rationalize, right? So if you don't want to see yourself as unfair, you can concoct excuses for the various unfair things you do. And say, oh, well, you know, really, blah, 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 blah. So, so yeah, self-ratings of unfairness or laziness uh, or unreliability, traits like that correlate about zero between self-ratings and peer ratings. Um, and jerk, I think, an overall moral character is going to be like that, right? I would expect probably about a zero correlation between how jerkish someone thinks they are and how jerkish they are in reality. But that's not to say there's a negative correlation. I mean, I think there's some jerks who are perfectly moderately well aware that they're jerks in a certain kind of superficial way. But overall, and but there are also some jerks who just think that they are great. I think this especially applies to moralizing jerks. And I do want to distinguish to go back. I know I'm being a little convoluted in my answer here, but I, I do want to distinguish between moralizing jerks and jerks who really have a good moral vision, because I think that jerks who have a good moral vision are to some extent lucky. <laughs> they lucked into a good moral vision because when someone who's dispositionally a jerk tends to moralize, tends to think about things in moralistic ways, their, their moralization tends to be ill-tuned. They're not very good in the way that, that sweethearts are somewhat better at seeing the values that, that really exist in the world because they're not open to other people's perspectives. They're not open to diversity of opinion in the same way. So most people who are jerks who do a lot of moralizing are more like that overly strict high school teacher that I was imagining, <laughs> right? Uh, they moralize, right? But their moralization is, you know, ill-tuned and jerkish and itself a kind of disrespectful of other moral visions. All right. So this is all part of going back to a thread on self-knowledge. So self-knowledge of your moral character and self-knowledge uh, of that the moralizing jerk has, right? These people will tend to think that they have excellent moral character in it, but at the same time, be some of the most rotten people. Because once you've got moralizing, a web of moralizing excuses, you can act like, you know, these wonderful characters from 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 Dickens, for example, you know, Mr. Bumble and Scrooge, who've got all these horrible moralizing excuses for treating people really badly. So yeah, so I think jerk self-knowledge is pretty hard. Um, and in fact, there's a kind of, I think, almost a paradox at the heart of it, right? Because to really have more than superficial knowledge that you're a jerk, to really like think to yourself, man, I am a jerk in this kind of stinging way that carries with it self-disapproval, right? As opposed to like some superficial, yeah, whatever, I'm a jerk, right? That's not really moral self-knowledge yet, I think. That's too superficial, right? But to have the moral self-knowledge of stinging, stinging, painful, self-disapprobation, right? Feeling bad about yourself, right? To have that, you kind of have to already be appreciating other people's perspectives. Mm -hmm. So to the extent you like really worry and really feel bad about that, like maybe I'm being a jerk, right? In that very moment, 
you're you're no longer being a jerk because because you're starting to appreciate the perspectives of other people around you. In fact, I think it's often sweethearts who are the ones who are most acutely worried that that they've been acting like a jerk and are most eager to apologize and make amends, right? Because of that. But they, they've got to be some hope, right? So do you do you think if anyone requires moral critics, intimate moral critics, it is the jerk? Right. So another kind of avenue to self-knowledge is listening to other people. So you can you you can find someone <laughs> who knows you well and cares for you and is willing to be frank with you and you know try to have a chat with them about your moral defects. Man, what a horrible hard conversation to have, huh? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> like okay, you know, ask your spouse, <laughs> ask your best friend, tell me like give me the bad news. <laughs> Mm-hmm, right. Mm-hmm. So I think you can learn a lot by that, but also that's going to be hard for a jerk to do, right? Because one of the right. things jerks are really bad at is is listening, right? Part of listening, part of real listening, is taking seriously into account other people's perspectives, including when those perspectives are negative towards you and disagree with you. And boy, that's just definitionally not what a jerk does, right? So I mean, since we're not all since no one's a hundred percent jerk, I think we all have aspects or moments where we can we can be listeners of that sort. But to the extent you're already in the jerkish direction, it's going to be harder to and rarer to enter those moments. And there's going to be much more of a tendency to dismiss people, maybe even intimate people, when they're criticizing you as being jerks or fools or not really understanding you. When in fact it's you that don't really understand them. So, Eric, you've been doing public philosophy for a while in, in a variety of ways. And the venue that many people are probably most familiar with is, is your blog, as I alluded to at the beginning of this conversation. One, one of the things that I'm excited about in the time in which we're doing philosophy is that a lot of other philosophers are finding themselves excited about, about starting public philosophy projects. But one of the things that I hear uh, from them is, is, is how difficult it is to follow through on that idea, or they find it hard to be consistent with whatever they, they, they are doing. So I wonder if you can, can share with us the importance of, of consistency for you, how that has been for you, and some tips perhaps that you can offer up to some folks to kind of help them remain consistent with their, with their projects. Right. Well, one thing our discipline doesn't do very well is reward people for doing public philosophy. Yeah. Right. Um, when you talk about you know, tenure and promotion and, and, and those sorts of things, you know, they look at your research and they look at your teaching and they look at what you do on campus, uh, you know, in terms of service positions, administrative positions, but they tend not to look much at what you do on the public side. Um, so one thing I think would be good <laughs> would be if we, if we thought more seriously about how to value that appropriately, uh, in academia. Um, but, uh, but you had also asked about consistency. And yeah, so I've been doing this blog, The Splintered Mind, since 2006, and I publish on it weekly, uh, sometimes more than once a week, but I try to do it at least weekly. And for me, it's a kind of discipline, which I found really valuable. For me, taking what I've been thinking about in the course of a week and trying to find some piece of it that I can explain to a broader audience in a comprehensible way 
it reveals its importance. I mean, it doesn't have to be a super broad audience. I mean, some of my posts are kind of on the technical side. I'm not talking about necessarily the broadest of all possible audiences, right? But um, but at least a somewhat more broad broad audience than than other uh, professors, right? The the discipline of trying to take your ideas and and find the core, the heart of them, I think is has proved for me valuable in my own thinking, right? So there's a kind of, it's not just for a service to the world <laughs> that I do my blog, right? It's, I don't know if I'm a nice enough person that I would keep doing it if it were just that, <laughs> right? It's a service to myself, right? It's an opportunity for me as a kind of intellectual discipline of myself to engage with ideas in a certain way that I find productive. Right, if I'm always doing my ideas at a technical level for specialists, then it's so easy to get lost in the details and lost in the weeds and lose track of the big picture. So it keeps you keeps me coming back again and again to the big picture and what's interesting and what's exciting and what's valuable and why are we doing philosophy in the first place. What people would notice, I mean, you mentioned kind of the technical uh, technical aspects of, of, of some of the work, but you also write science fiction. My assumption is that what you perhaps get out of academic writing or even your blog writing is not necessarily what you perhaps get out of science fiction writing. So, so I wonder what, what joys do you get from science fiction writing? Or does it serve the same purpose as that you just described, the, the kind of philosophical reflections that you do on your blog? You know, it's related. It serves some of the same purpose, um, but it also is very different. Um, so my science fiction is very philosophical in its inspiration. What I want to do in all of my science fiction stories is explore philosophical issues about the nature of consciousness, the nature of our values, the possible future, um, and do it in a way that's tuned to kind of the complexities and nuances of these issues. And yet, when I do it as fiction, I engage in it in an emotionally much more powerful way. I mean, not all readers take away the emotion from something that I've written <laughs> that I put into it. Mm -hmm. But for me, writing a fiction is... Uh, really engages my imagination and my emotions in ways that writing speculative philosophical thought experiments that are not couched as fictions doesn't do as fully. And I think there's value in that, right? So one of the things that I've been thinking in general about the value of, of fiction as a way of doing philosophy is this, right? You could think of ways of doing philosophy as existing on a spectrum from super abstract things like act on the maxim you can will to be a universal law or maximize good consequences, right? These are so abstract, right? And then in the middle somewhere you have thought experiments, like paragraph long thought experiments, like the trolley problem, right? We probably, most of your listeners have heard of this, right? But this is just, imagine a runaway trolley is is going to hit five people if you don't do something and kill them, right? So you have an opportunity to flip a switch and divert it onto a sidetrack and, you know, but there it will kill one person, right? Is it okay to flip the switch, right? These kinds of thought experiments that people have, right? That's kind of like a little mini fiction. 
And one of the things it does is it engages the imagination, it engages the emotions maybe just a little bit more than the abstract principle does. And then way at the far end, you have like a fully developed fiction with a, with a lots of detail, like a, a, a two-hour movie or a novel, right? And I think all of these are ways of exploring philosophical issues like the value of human life and what should you do ethically and, you know, that sort of thing. And they have different and complementary epistemic values and, and virtues. Right? The, th the abstract stuff is good, but man, the human mind is so bad at abstract thinking, right? Where, where the human mind is really strongest is in thinking through examples. And if you try to, if you try to evaluate a claim like act on the maximum you can will to be a universal law, the first thing you kind of almost have to do is start thinking about examples. <laughs> like, okay, let's think about some examples, right? So, and the more you start thinking about detailed examples, the more you engage your emotions and your imagination and your social cognition, the more you're going toward where the human mind is strong. But there are also risks in that, right? Because examples can be laden with all kinds of details that might be irrelevant to the conclusion you want to draw. You know, you might sympathize with a narrator who's of a class and race that you like and not with a narrator who's of a class and race you don't like, and that can be kind of irrelevant to the, to the real moral issues, right? It's your own biases coming in, right? Whereas with an abstract principle, you know, the bias doesn't play in quite the same way. So I, I think that philosophy at its best really uses the entire spectrum, right? The really emotional, imaginative stuff on the one end and the really abstract stuff on the other end uh, and, and draws from all of those resources to, to, to try to come up with the best sense that we can make of philosophical ideas. So in addition to your own work, I wonder if you can recommend to us your favorite science fiction story. Hard to choose a favorite, <laughs> but but I just read this great novel. Uh, just came out, Kazuo Isiguro, right? The Nobel Prize yep, winner in literature, it right in front of me. Clara and the Sun, you yes, have it right yes. there. Yep, yep. Oh yep. my God, I love that book so much. Have you read it? Have you finished it yet? No, no, no. So 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 I go to the bookstore and I get a whole bunch of books. And I put them in order in which they are to be read. And they just look at me until it's time. So it's just staring at me until it gets its time in the limelight. Have you seen on Twitter, I have posted a picture a couple months ago of the books by my bed. <laughs> if you see that picture, then you'll know I sympathize with what you're saying. Okay. So, oh, I love that book. So it's, I, I don't want to give any spoilers, but it's from the point of view of a conscious... Um, robot companion for a disabled girl, right? And this companion is, in some ways, a complete sweetheart, right? Mm. Uh, and is so interesting to think about in terms of her level of devotion to the interests of the girl that she is assigned to take care of, right? And of course, if we were making companion robots, and if we someday made robots who are conscious, and you know, who know, knows whether we'd ever be able to do that, but you know, maybe we can speculate about it, right? If we were designed, if we did someday make robots who are conscious, we probably wouldn't make these kinds of you know monstrous, rebelling robots that the you know kind of bad science fiction so often imagines, right? Mm -hmm. We'd make robots that were designed to be sweet and compliant and helpful, right? 
And this robot is so sweet and compliant and helpful. Um, and she has this naive and endearing kind of religious worship of the sun, mm -hmm. which is also really kind of fascinating to think about. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think it really invites the idea. Um, I mean, obviously, on the face of it, the advice, the idea of thinking about um, what our duties would be to such future robots if we ever made them. But, you know, even more broadly than that, it also thinks about, it also invites you to think about what kind of life satisfaction you can get through devoted service to others. And is it possible to live an authentic life in that way? Is there something that this robot Clara is missing uh, in terms of self-respect and self-appreciation in her willingness to sacrifice so readily. I love that. And I love your I love your summary. So it's, it's kind of like a reading rainbow summary. So you didn't give it all away, but you told us just enough to like <laughs> make it <laughs> make us want to open it up quickly. So so thank you so much for that. Thank you so much for this conversation, Eric. I learned I learned a lot. Oh, it's been wonderful chatting with you. For more access to the Unmute Podcast, subscribe on iTunes or head over to the website at www.unmutepodcast.co. There you can get more information about our guests, participate in giveaways, as well as learn more about people, books, and concepts mentioned in today's episode. Until next time, remember that your silence will not protect you. Listen, think, speak. The world will be different as a result.